We've been in the book of Proverbs, and this morning's topic is as up-to-date as your smartphone. It's as timely as Twitter. Just for the sake of seeing how we are this morning, and for those of you who are introverts, I sincerely apologize for what's about to happen next, okay? You'll be in a group. You won't be alone. Hopefully, you won't hate me too much for it. If you've been on social media this morning, it's 10.56 on a Sunday morning. If you've been on social media this morning, would you please stand up? <laughs> social media in any form, okay? Instagram, Facebook, whatever. I have. I'm standing, okay? <laughs> how about, how many of you have used email this morning at 10.56 on a Sunday morning? Would you join them? Everybody stay standing. All the email users. How about the text message receivers or senders? If you have received or sent a text message this morning, would you stand up? If you've done that increasingly rare thing and you have received or made a phone call this morning, would you please stand up? Congratulations for the three of you who have had a quiet morning. Thank you. You may be seated. We live in a frantic time. It's busy. It is very likely that this sermon will be interrupted somewhere in the chairs by that busyness. It's already happened twice this weekend at the exact same moment in the message. Somebody's phone went off. They had trouble finding it. In the first service, we were treated to kind of this little calypso thing, right? <laughs> That's where we live. It's constant. It's frantic. It's socially tense. And the people who help build the digital life that we all live are increasingly concerned about it. In 2012, in Long Beach, Dr. Sherry Turkle gave a TED Talk, if you're familiar with TED Talks. She gave a speech entitled, Connected But Alone, and it asked a question, and Dr. Sherry Turkle was concerned as about what the internet was actually becoming. In 1996, which is prehistoric in the age of the internet, she was featured on the cover of Wired magazine, and for good reason. Way back then, in the very early days of the internet, she brought her considerable academic expertise to bear on digital life, and in 2012, she spoke again, something that has been viewed all over the world many, many, many times because all these years later, she's concerned about what the digital world has become. Dr. Sherry Turkle is a professor at a very notable university that's actually the bleeding edge of this kind of research. She teaches at MIT. She's both a sociologist and a psychologist. And her slides, if you listen to the talk, like all TED Talks, it's short, had some troubling things. She said at this stage, and this is in 2012, it's gotten much worse in 2018, she said, we find ourselves alone together. What did she mean? Well, it's simple. If you go out to lunch today, just you can have a fun little social science kind of survey all on your own. Wherever you go to lunch, watch and see how many people are at a table together, but they're all actually looking at their smartphones. Have you seen it? You're in church now, no lying. Have you done it? <laughs> yes, you have. So have I. I've probably, for the, the single thing I've apologized for the most in the last five or six years, 
is for being distracted and immersed in my phone when I have wonderful people around me like my wife. We'll be at breakfast, my phone will chirp, and suddenly it's an old Western movie where the gunfighters are looking at each other. (laughs) And she's looking at me like, you want to go for that phone? You You want to do this? And I'm looking at her like, I really want to check what that might, that, that sounded important. That particular ping sounded important. I'm a pastor, for goodness sakes. I should check. And it starts. Why are we alone together? Well, it's a little something so important that it's actually made it into the Oxford English Dictionary. It's known as FOMO. Do you know what FOMO is? Those of you who know, shout it out. FOMO means? Holy smokes, everybody knew that. I had a grandma shout that back to me yesterday, and I was pleased and appalled all at the same time. Everybody knows what FOMO means. We're all experiencing it. If you're connected into the digital world, it means fear of missing out. Here's how Oxford English Dictionary, the gold standard in the language, defines it. FOMO is the anxiety that an exciting or interesting event may currently be happening elsewhere, often aroused by posts seen on a social media website. You don't want to miss out. Your actual life is taking place right in front of you, but there is this gnawing concern that you might miss something important. Dr. Turkle said, because of this, we're now hiding from each other. People increasingly live in the fear and the understanding that no one is really listening. And she said, we live in an age where people expect more from technology and less less from each other. Well, that's it. It's changed everything. Now, let me just tell you my stance before we go in. Because it would be all too easy to misunderstand me as a technology-hating curmudgeon. This old guy who was born in a different time and just doesn't understand it. I don't know if I understand it, but I'm I'm fully into it. A Verizon store uh, customer service guy described me, apparently, to my child as an apple tree because we now own every piece of hardware that Apple makes. I have to be careful to silence the Apple watch that was just given to me so that I don't get a phone call while I'm trying to teach you the Bible. Okay? I'm into it. I'm on social media, and I'm telling you this because I can feel the effect it has on me. I know what it's done to my brain, more on that in a minute. I can feel and I'm increasingly concerned for what it's doing to my heart. And the traditional stance regarding all new forms of technology is, listen, this is just another tool. People freaked out when the telegram was invented as well. And yes, they did. And they freaked out when the telephone was invented, and they really freaked out when the printing press was invented. It is a tool. In fact, Gutenberg's printing press made things possible, was the catalyst and the cement for social and cultural change that could not happen until his printing press was working. It spread literacy across the world. It made individuals with powerful ideas be able to copy them and send them everywhere. It changed the world forever, and the internet is at least 
that cataclysmic. It's at least that important. And you're right, it is just a tool, much as a hammer or a saw or a gun is a tool. And those may be used to shelter, to protect, or to feed, or they may be used to bludgeon and to torture and to kill. The power is in the hands of the user, but this particular technology, I'm convinced, based on what I've seen in Scripture, in my own heart, and in conversations with countless people, here's my premise. The internet is rocket fuel for foolishness. Foolishness is the easy path. It's what comes easy. It's what we're drawn to first. Lesson to Proverbs describe the crossroads people always find themselves at. Proverbs 15 verse 14 says, The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. When we began this series, I told you in addition to teaching you Proverbs, I'm going to try to teach you to interpret Proverbs. This is one of those Proverbs that invites you to have a ringside seat at life and to watch two different people live their life. One is a man who has understanding, another man is a man who is foolish, and it contrasts them. It tells you how they each choose to live. Let's look at it line by line. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. Way back in the beginning of Proverbs in chapter 1, verse 7, that we're, we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In other words, a right, reverent relationship with God, that's where knowledge, wisdom begin. If you don't have a right relationship with God, you're not wise, you're not understanding at all. You don't know the author of the fabric of life itself. So that man who has that knowledge, his heart who already has that understanding, because he has understanding, is continuing to seek knowledge. He knows who God is and he understands through the wisdom of God's Word and the Proverbs, he knows how life works. And because he's in a right relationship and he understands what life actually is, he is continually looking for knowledge. He's seeking for it. On the other hand, there's another kind of person. This man, this woman is a fool, which in Proverbs is not always and necessarily someone who is stupid. It's just someone who doesn't have any regard for God and doesn't know how life actually works. They trust their own understanding rather than the king and the creator's understanding. That person, says, has a mouth that feeds on folly. And what Proverbs wants to do is put these two lines side by side and have you ask yourself, what are you doing? Where do you find yourself in these two paths? Now, pay attention to the verbs. One person seeks knowledge, the other person feeds on folly. Seeks versus feeds. What's easier, to seek, to search for something, or to feed? What do you think? Feeding. Feeding's easy. I mean, look at me. Follow me into a buffet. You'll see how <laughs> incredibly easy it is to feed. To search for something that is lost, for search for something that you're not sure exists, that's difficult. And Proverbs says you should cry out for wisdom. You should search for it like treasure. You should insist on it. You should buy. Don't, 
worry about buying anything else by wisdom instead. The person who understands who God is and has that knowledge, he's always seeking knowledge. And the mouth of a fool feeds on folly, and there is nothing in human history that more readily offers an endless stream of wildly entertaining and amusing folly than the internet. You can take a five-minute break and find yourself there two hours later, wondering what it meant, wondering what you've learned, wondering where the day went. This is where we currently live. In other words, we're in an age where we have to be aware of the dangers that this particular technology poses. I only have time for three that I think are the most important as we mine through Proverbs. There are three dangers to living wisely. These have always been part of the human experience. The internet makes it more, makes it more difficult. The internet gives that rocket fuel to foolishness, and the first thing that the internet excels at is the danger of comparison. There is nothing in the world for comparing your life to the lives of others like social media. See, to compare, you have to know what that other person is doing. There was a time when you graduated from high school and went off to college, got a job somewhere, maybe met someone, married, have kids, and you could go for years without ever seeing anybody that you went to high school with. Then you'd run into each other at high school reunions, and people would lie to each other and say, you look great, <laughs> because you hadn't seen each other in 20 years. I told a friend I'm very concerned. People who haven't seen me in a while tell me I'm look, I look great when I was 20, and I actually did. Nobody said anything about it. Something has changed here. There's, there's trouble. I'm dying in front of them, and they're trying to make me feel better. So what, what is actually happening? Well, now through the miracle of social media, you can watch their whole life. You can stalk them. You can be an internet creeper. You can keep up. And here is what the internet offers that life has never afforded us before. There's only a few people who post the truth on social media. Almost all of us prefer to put the highlight reel up there. If you look at my Facebook page, very seldom, if ever, will you see one of my difficult days. That's not why I use it. Why do I use it? I want to have a digital archive of the great moments in the life of my family and the life of our church. I want to remember the, the time that little brother said to Brig, he forgot. And little brother said to big brother, bring it. And I want an archive of what happened and a picture of the remains after little brother said to big brother, hey, bring it, man. And okay, this is what was said, this is what happened, here's what was left, okay? I couldn't do that before. I didn't always have a camera in my pocket. I want to post scripture. I want to give hope. I want to keep it light and encouraging. The moments where I stare off into space and ask myself hard questions, my struggles with God, my struggles as a father, as a husband, I don't post that stuff. So if you look at my social media, like almost everybody else's social media, life looks pretty amazing, right? The trouble is you're looking at their highlight reel and you're painfully aware of your blooper reel. And you're looking at social media saying, man, everybody's got it together. My life stinks. I'm a horrible, wretched failure of a person. And you're dead emotionally, spiritually. 
It's a real thing. We have the data now. They've discovered that eighth graders who are heavy social media users have a much higher incidence of depression than eighth graders who don't. Simple as that. We're not sure of the chicken and the egg. We're not sure if it, one leads to another or they come together. But one thing for sure, one thing the social media world excels at is comparison, and it's the cancer of contentment. Listen again to Proverbs. Look at this passage. It says, all the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. In other words, if you cultivate, if you learn how to have a cheerful heart, life is a never-ending banquet for you. You have a portable feast. You banquet, you enjoy all day long. On the other hand, people who are afflicted, they find that every day is evil. In Philippians, Paul wrote from prison that he had learned to be content, meaning there was a time even in his walk with Christ when he did not know how to be a contented man. And his confession and his declaration is, I know how to handle everything. I know how to starve and be content, and I know how to have a banquet and be content. And he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the original context. Turns out it has nothing to do with scoring touchdowns. You might apply it that way, but the real secret of contentment is knowing who you are in Christ and being satisfied with what He has provided and continually looking at the parade of carefully curated, manicured lives as presented by other people in their best moments will kill your contentment. Sharice and I went to a trendy little ice cream shop the other day, and we just ordered our ice cream in a tree hipster-looking guy came in with a hipster-looking girl, and I'd already noticed the corner of the store that they had set up for the Instagram pictures. They had a kind of a dedicated wall that was perfect for it, all the cool stores do. And the guy said to the girl behind the counter, make it as dramatic as possible. And I thought, dramatic ice cream? Well, what is that? <laughs> so I kind of watched, you know? And he made it dramatic. And I felt that I was missing out because I just had a plain cup of ice cream, stood there like an idiot with just a, an undramatic, rather boring cup of ice cream. And then I watched for 15 minutes her pose in that Instagram-dedicated corner, and he walked around, he did everything but bring in lighting to make the shop perfect. And because you can creep, I actually followed the ice cream shop's account to see if I could see how the shoot worked out. Apparently, they were never pleased because I never saw a picture. And the, she, he was shuttling back and forth. He'd take a few shots, show them to her. No, I look fat. I mean, we've got a production going on in this ice cream store in northern Huntington Beach. And I thought, this, this is life as it is now. Her friends are looking at that thinking, wow, she always has a great time. She looks great. He looks great. Look how happy they look, and the comparison is killing them. That's what social media does. That's one of its effects. Look at Proverbs 14, verse 30. It says, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes bones rot. If you can develop a peaceful, contented heart, your whole life will surge 
You'll have life in all of your being, but envy makes the bones rot. That's one of the fuels that the internet is so good at providing. It fuels comparison, and comparison is cancer to contentment. But there's more. It's not just comparison. It's also, I'm convinced, anger. As nothing else, the internet is a beautiful technology to disseminate anything, but what it makes dis- what seems to make it run these days at least is anger. Why is that? Because in a previous time, you had to buy books, meet with people, or go to talks, or at least be in front of a TV set to hear people present ideas. Now you can bring the knowledge of the entire world into your phone. And again, the technology offers extraordinary opportunities. Years ago, MIT, where Dr. Sherry Turkle teaches, made the extraordinary decision to offer its courses to the world for free. They weren't for credit, but the invitation is simply this. Wherever you are, if you have internet access and you're smart enough to keep up, come on in. Learn with us. Let's collaborate. Let's change the world. And years ago in Cape Cod, I had the opportunity of meeting a brilliant Chinese scientist who is at the forefront of that idea, and he has pushed knowledge into the corners of his native country of China, where simply that kind of technology and that kind of learning wasn't available 20 years ago. So it can be used for glorious things, but what it seems to be used for more and more is anger. Why? Because the algorithms that are powering these incredibly sophisticated, bursting websites like YouTube, the entire digital universe is set up to make your world about you. They collect an amount of data that I think all of us would find shocking. Through your searches and through your purchases and through your broadcasting your location, they learn who you are and the things that you're likely to enjoy. They will start advertising to you based on what they think you might like. And it creates an incredibly self-centered world. And if you're upset with the world, and frankly, who isn't? Do you like the world the way it currently is? No, nobody does. On both sides of the political aisle, everybody's ticked. And the internet offers you this opportunity. You can hear angry people on both sides. You can listen to Bill Maher and men like him and women like him for hours, or you can run to the other side and you can listen to Ben Shapiro and guys like him for hours. I tested it. I don't know when it happened, but YouTube, I think now, comes preloaded with a little feature called autoplay. So I've been listening to this guy talk about just life in general, and I searched his name, and I clicked the first lecture that came up, and I listened for about 10 minutes, and then I went on to do other things, and I just let YouTube play in the background. Two hours later, tired of the drone, I shut it off. But for two hours, the algorithm worked to offer me someone, either more of this guy or guys like him, to say, Bruce, Keep company with this guy. Listen to all that they have to offer. What does Proverbs say about that? Listen, these are actually instructions. Sometimes Proverbs makes observations, and it just invites you to look at how life works. Other times, the wise teacher 
who knows God and loves God and is trying to show you the way to God gives you direct instructions. This is one of those times. Read this with me, Proverbs 22. It says, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. There's an instruction, there's a direct commandment you're given by God in His Word, and to incentivize your behavior and to reward you and encourage you, God tells you why He wants you to do it this way. I told you part of this series is not only teaching you some Proverbs, but helping you understand how to interpret them. So let's work through this one. And here's the rule I give Bible college students and seminarians. If you can explain what the verse or the story says to an eight-year-old boy, you get it. Not an eight-year-old girl. They're sharper. They're calmer, okay? You have to work a little harder and explain it to an eight-year-old boy. In your own words, what is the instruction? How would you explain that first verse to an eight-year-old boy? Don't make friends with who? Don't hang out. Don't make friends with angry people. It says in two lines, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go, in other words, keep company, keep life, do life with a wrathful man. Repeated twice for emphasis. Why? It's the next verse. What are the reasons given for not keeping company with angry people? You'll be like him, and you'll entangle yourself in a snare. And that's kind of poetic because there actually is no physical snare of anger. I could be very, very angry, and you would not see anything actually binding me. Now, let me ask you this. Do you know angry people? Are they ensnared? Are they bound up? Oh, yes. I can see it in the last five years. It's changed the disposition of Christian people I care about. And the reason they've changed is because through the power of the Internet, they've kept company with angry people. And they're hearing so much from that angry man and from Jesus 15 minutes in the morning and from angry men all day. And Jesus doesn't begin to have a chance at counteracting all of that anger, even if it's righteous anger, even if they're right. Listen to the wisdom of the book of James. It says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It is possible to be angry and not sin, but oh, is it easy to sin when you're angry. Have you noticed? So, Proverbs says, if you meet an angry person, don't go with them. Don't go deep with that relationship. Don't hang out with that person. You'll become angry and bitter as he is, and you'll find yourself ensnared, and it happens. Sometimes right before church, someone will come to me, and I know something's going on. I just hope it's not happening right here at the church at that moment. And they say, did you hear? No, I haven't. Please. (laughs) Let's be furious after the service together. Don't enrage me right before I preach. I'm peaceful and thinking God's thoughts right now as best I can. Please don't infuriate me. I can tell you're infected. Infect me right after church, please. (laughs) It's anger that does it. There's comparison that kills contentment. There's anger where you become ensnared. And perhaps the most meaningful and the most frequent, maybe you've never thought of it this way, but the internet is rocket fuel for gossip too. Oh man, can you gossip using the internet? 
See, in a previous life, to gossip about somebody, you had to either see them or talk to someone who had. Now you can watch them all the time. If they have a Facebook page and God helped them, they've left it open. They haven't noticed and they're posting stuff in public and they're putting a lot of pictures up. You can watch their lives. And when they fail, you can cheer. And when they blow it, you can make sure that your friends know. And you can send a text message, did you see? No, I didn't. Tell me what's up, girl. And here we go, right? <laughs> I'm not making that up. I've been there when those conversations are happening. Listen to Proverbs describe the attraction of gossip. Look at this. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Now, that's just an observation. That's not a warning. That's not an instruction. That's not giving you anything to do. What's it telling you? Talk to that eight-year-old boy again. What would you tell him about this verse? What is it telling you? Gossip is what? It doesn't say that gossip's bad. We'll get there. It does, this does not say that gossip is bad. It says something. It's tasty. Oh, man, did you hear? I knew it. I knew they couldn't afford that house. I knew he was no good. I tried to tell her. I could, I could tell he was a player. I knew she was going to get her heart broken. Oh, but it tastes so good. And then there's the hint of a warning. All that tasty gossip goes down into the inner part of the body. In other words, it stays with you. It changes you. It reshapes you from the inside. Look at it in the bigger context. The lack, for lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisper, quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The words of a whisperer like delicious morsels, they go down into the inner parts of the body. That's the bigger picture. What is gossip? It is wood to a fire. It is charcoal and hot embers and wood to fire. That strife, that comparison, that anger, that rejoicing over failure... All of that never stops as long as you keep looking and comparing. A young female journalist writing on a popular blog, a collection of blogs, really said this. Think about it. She wrote an article giving people rules for stalking other people on the internet or creeping. And if you're not familiar, stalking doesn't mean that you're going to murder them or burn their house down or anything like this. It just means you're keeping up, okay? So she gave rules on how to do it well, especially and importantly, keep your thumbs off the screen if you're deep into their Instagram history because you might inadvertently like something from two years ago and they will know in that moment you were diving deep to know what was up. So she said, put your hands behind your back if you have to, right? Here's how we stalk. Listen to this. This is the age in which we live. She writes, think about it. Where would we be today without the expert-level skills of our generation's greatest internet creepers? In the dark, that's where. Ignorant to what your ex has been up to? What his girlfriend looks like in a swimsuit? The deadness behind their eyes in group pictures? Unaware of what your crush gets in his Chipotle burrito? 
Are you blind to what cool girls you'll never be friends with or wearing on a daily basis? These are problems of a distant past, an empty and dark time that fortunately we've long since moved past as a society. Embrace this new reality. Just make sure to follow the rules as you, as you do. Some of you, I know this because I've been there. This is confessional. You're making yourself miserable with comparison. You're looking at people's lives who you no longer have friendship with, hoping that you'll see something that vindicates you. You're making sure that the people who are closest to you know all about it. It's a new technology for an old, old habit of the human heart, which, which Scripture calls sin. It's gossip. As a fellow struggler, as a heavy user, Here's what I would suggest based on the wisdom of Scripture. Three humble suggestions to people in this fight with me. First of all, realize that digital life is real life. I haven't seen it in a while, but there used to be an internet abbreviation called IRL, and that means for in real life, and people would distinguish between what they were doing on the internet and what they were doing in the physical world. I think I've seen a new truth it is so enmeshed, it is such a fabric of our lives, witness that almost everybody stood up. And we used 21st century technology at least a little bit early on a Sunday morning. Digital life is real life. A wise man said that you become what you behold. The internet and the way you're using it shapes you for better or for worse. Can you use it to go deep with God? Of course. But the attraction of that quick and easy, numbing, delightful entertainment is always present 24-7, and that is so much easier than going deep and being open and thinking hard thoughts and confronting God and yourself. So please realize first that digital life is real life, and the architects of the internet know it better than we do. Bill Gates famously kept cell phones away from his children, forbid them to have cell phones until, until they were 14 years of age. Steve Jobs famously forbid his children to use the iPad that he created. One of the hottest trends in education in Silicon Valley is technology-free schools. They want the kids using chalkboards and notebooks. They're keeping technology away from them because the people who are driving the technology see what it does to the brain and the soul, and they no longer like it. A second simple, I believe, wise idea from Scripture. First of all, Realize that digital life is real life. And secondly, and much with much more difficulty, practice loving God and other people one personal encounter at a time. The great commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with your heart, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, to love Him supremely. And Jesus said the second commandment is like it. Do you remember what He said? You love others like yourself. And I'm continually offering those apologies because when I'm distracted by my phone, when I read a text message, send back a quick email, check whatever is happening on my phone, at that moment I don't physically leave, but I withdraw my presence from the people I'm actually with. And you can't love anybody if you're not really with them. You will never love God and never love other people if you are continually distracted and drawn. I say this as a confession. You're continually distracted and drawn to whatever else might be happening somewhere else. 
scriptures in the Psalms speak to us about this kind of knowledge. Look with me on the screen to these simple, hard verses. Psalm 101 says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. In other words, I'm going to have a guard on my eyes. Then the psalmist prayed in Psalm 119 like this. Read this with me. It's a godly prayer. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. 3,000 years ago, the psalmist recognized that life was filled with things that were evil and with other things that may not be evil but that were worthless. Things that at the end of his life he would not be proud of. Things that had no eternal value. Things that robbed him of time and energy and vitality and intelligence to pursue what really matters. So the prayer is, turn my eyes away from worthless things. And it's your life that's on the line because he says, preserve my life according to your word. And that's why I say, finally, disconnect on purpose. I'm not suggesting you go completely off the grid. I don't think it's possible anymore. Your entire life is bound up and it's not going to change. It's all bound up in the digital world. There are only a few people who find themselves in a season of life where they actually can live off that grid. Most of us can't. What should we do then? We should disconnect on purpose. There should be times in families and in conversations and in life that are sacred spaces where you will not afford the technology, its immense power to distract you and pull you away from the things and the people who matter the most to you. One of the most serious things I'm hoping will come from this sermon is that parents, you'll go home and have honest, heartfelt, wide-open, shame-and-guilt-free conversations with your children. The great majority of teenagers in this country now acknowledge that they are using apps that their parents know nothing about and doing things that they could never tell their parents. That's shaping minds. That's rewiring brains. That's shaping and deadening souls as well. What must you do? You must at a certain point disconnect on purpose so that you can be available in actual real life to the things that matter the most. A majority of millennials, it's not, you're not the younger generation anymore, you're not the youngest generation, I'm sorry millennials, there's a generation behind you that is even more digital, na- digitally native than you are, they've had Wi-Fi their entire lives. But a majority of millennials aged 18 and above admit, the majority of them admit that actual face-to-face personal conversations are difficult for them. And a full 30% of millennials admit to routinely canceling their presence at events that they had planned to attend simply because they fear the social awkwardness. They're right. Real life is awkward. I'm boring. Ask my wife, I'm annoying. I'm difficult to put up with. The internet, if you know how to use it, is none of those things. It's always entertaining, it's always engaging, it's always available, and the minute it stops being any one of those things you want it to be, you can do something else. 
But we cannot possibly love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we cannot possibly love other people if we are continually have half of our mind and half of our heart elsewhere in a world that does not exist anywhere but in the digital reality. My sincere prayer for you is that you will learn along with me to walk wisely in this digital age by disconnecting on purpose and by saying that God who is not shocked and not working on a contingency plan now that the internet is here, God in heaven is not up in heaven saying, oh my goodness, what will I do? He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. He knows the way through this life all the way to heaven if only you will have the wisdom and the courage to heed what he wants you to do. Let's pray together. You've been very attentive to me. Now, may I simply invite you to turn your attention fully to God? Listen to me for just one more second as I direct your thoughts to Him. If this resonated, what are you going to do about it? Parents, can you muster up those conversations? Can you give your kid confidence and trust that they can tell you the truth? And you'll keep a straight face. You won't get angry. You'll listen with compassion and understanding. See, I've got a conviction that a lot of you have a digital life and you're starting to hate it. And it's wearing you out. What are you going to do about that? What confessions do you need to make to the Lord right now? What practical steps do you need to make tomorrow? When you meet with God in the morning, how's that war between the phone and your Bible? How's that going to go? What needs to change? There aren't always hard, fast rules. Wisdom is required. Information isn't always the answer. Sometimes it requires something greater, something better called wisdom. If this connected with you, if you heard God's timeless truth and it spoke to you right here, right now, in this moment of your life, talk to Him about it. Decide. Commit. And receive His grace and His mercy. Lord, with all of our distractions, our silence is a space for us to turn to you, the God who is there, who sent his son to die for sins and die for sinners. We are needy, Lord. We are needy of grace and truth and honesty and mercy and compassion and forgiveness and justice and holiness, things that are so rarely and with such great difficulty found in the digital world. Deal with us, receive us, Lord, as we are, and make us as you want us to be. Thank you, Lord, for your great grace. Give your individual children, men, women, young kids, couples, families, the teenagers, Lord, who are a little bit nervous about all the topics that are being discussed and are dreading a hard conversation. Give us all grace so that we may live in this up to the minute super fast 21st century world in a wise way that would be pleasing to you and would bring glory to your name. Receive this offering, Lord, these decisions, these prayer requests, whatever people choose to put on their card, receive it and take it, Lord, and make it for the best in the name of Jesus. Amen.